Hey, this is Wit with just a quick word before we get into the show. Lots happened since I started releasing what was season two and uh, then got moved to season three. With the lockdown and quarantine of COVID-19, we pivoted to the, I uh, know that's everybody's favorite word, pivot. Um, we pivoted to the COVID-19 summit and had four recording sessions, which turned into six episodes. Uh, that was a great experience, but uh, the day after we finished our last recording session, uh, George Floyd was murdered in Minneapolis, and a lot has happened, uh, particularly in the U.S., but across uh, the globe as well, focusing on the uh, Black Lives Matter movement and uh, so many other aspects of racial justice. And then in the improv world, so much has changed as well. So this particular episode and a few others that uh, I'll be releasing, I just want to note they were pre-COVID-19 conversations, and if they had been after, we certainly would have covered some different topics and different depth and uh, definitely would have had some different conversations. So I wanted to share these with you, though, anyways, because there's some rich conversations, and uh, this particular one is with Patty Stiles, and that's one I've been looking forward to releasing. But I know Patty would agree with me that there are plenty of things to learn and grow and people to uh, support and things to figure out personally in our society and certainly in the improv community as well. So that's my quick note. And so let's uh, get into the next episode. Hey, you. How sweet of you to stop by. I mean, it's unannounced, but no, let's do this on your schedule. You came here on a great day on the Improv Comedy Connection. I'm your host, Witt Schiller, and I am really excited about sharing this conversation with you. One of the unanticipated benefits of doing my own editing on these episodes is that I really get to listen hard to the conversations multiple times, and that lets me get that much more value out of the great conversations that I've had. And this one was particularly rich, so you just might want to plan to listen to it yourself several times. Today I'm talking with Patty Stiles. Patty is in Melbourne, Australia now, but got her start in Calgary at the legendary Loose Moose Theatre Company working directly with Keith Johnstone. You'll get a couple of peeks into what that experience was like, but Patty drops so much insight and useful perspective into improv generally. She teaches all over the world, traveling quite a bit of the year to do so, and so many have benefited from her teaching directly. But this conversation you're dropping in on is a concentrated time with one of the most respected voices in improvisation worldwide. I can't wait to start, so let's do just that with the Patty Styles episode of the Improv Comedy Connection. Patty, I want to just get a better sense than I have of your early experience with improv. And I think it was when you were brought into the Loose Moose Theater experience as kind of an apprentice intern, Mm. kind of a different experience. I'd I'd like you to talk about how that went and what you expected to get out of that at the beginning. And then I'll have a couple follow-up questions for you, but can we start there? Absolutely. So I, I knew for a long time that I wanted to work in theater and I was very drawn to the performing arts. And in high school, when I was asking questions to my teachers about how do I move forward in the profession, most of them looked quite confused and they'd say, well, go to university. And I mean, the answer made sense, but it seemed like 
an answer out of desperation instead of an answer out of knowledge. And then there was a, a notice put forward for what was called a work experience program, where basically you sign up and you say, I want to work in whatever field, and they find yeah. a placement for you in that field. And I thought, oh, this would be excellent. So I put my name in and I was sent to the Loose Moose Theatre Company. No greater turn of fate could have happened. <laughs> but you're, you're prepped, like you have to do all the, you're going for a job interview, you know, so I laid out my clothes the night before and I was doing all this preparation. And then I went to the theater and I had an interview and they mm -hmm. agreed to take me on as a work experience student. So that meant each week, a portion of normal class time, I would be spending at the theater company. So my jobs included, for example, going through all the press clippings and, you know, the days before everything was online, going through the paper, cutting out press clippings, putting it into a press book, which was great because I actually got to read about the history of the company, mm. learn mm -hmm. about past productions. How long had it been in place at the time that you started there? Well, Loose Moose, it's started in 77. I think that's when the, the first official show at the Pump House was. Okay. Uh, and then they, they got their own theater, which was the Loose Moose Theater Simplex, which was out by the airport. And it used to be an old cattle auction barn. So the sight lines were amazing because farmers know how to look at cattle. <laughs> it was. It was just brilliant. I'm uh, sure it was. Yeah. <laughs> so I started in 83. And I think they had been at the Simplex maybe two to three years at that time. So okay. I, was, I wasn't I was there when they were all making, you know, painting the theater and building everything, but I came in very soon after. So I was able to read these press clippings and interviews, which was fascinating. I also was helping to run front of house. So I was learning about how the box office works, the concession, how you greet mm -hmm. an audience when you ticket take, where mm -hmm. you seat people in the audience. I was given the opportunity to observe up in the booth. So I learned about the lighting equipment, the sound equipment. I was in on rehearsals. Uh, I got to watch the shows. So it was really immersive in everything about theater making. Mm -hmm. So, and this is something that, I find a lot of improvisers actually don't know. So they learn improvisation skills, but they don't learn about theater making. And it really comes into play when you watch people improvise because they're reproducing what they've seen other people do. They don't have that other toolkit to go, what do I want to create? And this gave me that grounding. I also, in sitting in on the rehearsals and the shows and watching the audience and listening to how the performers talked to each other, respected each other and worked together, the incredible freedom of creation, the, the openness to ideas, the here's an idea, let's give it a go, instead of here's an idea and now we're going to intellectually debate whether or not that's good before we even try it. That freedom of play and exploration that was my heart that's what i had been looking for in theater so this is in for lack of a better term kind of a more traditional theater context as opposed to an improv uh, or impro theater 
context. Yes. So that's why the company is called Loose Moose Theater Company. Right. So the style of work we focus in and use and create from is improvisation, but we're a theater company. So we did theater sports. We also did a children's theater season. We did scripted shows. So we would do shows like the fire raisers from uh, Max Fersh. Uh, we, we would do Keats plays. We would do plays by other company members like Clem Martini and Jim Curry. So we were generating plays full length, mm-hmm. two hour plays, full costume, full lighting, lighting cues, sound cues, rehearsal process, everything. There was sketch comedy shows. We did performance in the park. We performed at parades. We performed in schools. We're a theater company. Improvisation was how we created theater. And this is a very different mindset to a lot of other impro groups because they're focused on a different way of using improvisation. So how would you, uh, how would, and, and we'll, well, uh, you know, I will uh, try to engage in impro as opposed to improv, <laughs> just <laughs> for, for the language. It'll, it'll, it'll morph back and forth, but I'll also try to say process instead of process um, in light of your <laughs> Canadian heritage. <laughs> it's, it's completely fine for you to use improv. It is the American short form of the word improvisation. Impro is British English. Improv is American English. Yeah. So for for the use of those that 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 tool though for mm. creating theater, how were you using it to create theater? Ah, oh, in every sense. Oh gosh, my brain just blew open because it's it's hard to encapsulate it. Um so if you were putting on a play, so it would even mm-hmm. start right from the choices. If there was something you wanted to create, you would ask your, yourself why? Why do I want to create this? And what is the experience for the audience? Those two questions, very few improvisation companies actually ask themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of impro troops and impro groups and impro teams. They don't ask themselves that question. What do you want to create? What's the audience's experience? What do you want to give mm-hmm. them? What should they have? For me, those questions are the essence of performance theater or performing arts. It's the same with music, mm-hmm. with dance, with everything, because we are creating for the audience. And even if you go, what do I want to do? I want to make them laugh. Great. Then study mm-hmm. comedy, learn how to do a pratfall, diversify your skills so you can achieve that goal. Cause that's the fun of being a performing artist. We have so many tools and applications at our disposal if we take the time to actually be curious about our own work. So we would use it in first the theory, the why, what do you want the audience to experience? We would use it in, for example, if Keith was writing a play, he did a a play Mutiny on the Bounty, and he also did The Reluctant Resurrection of Sherlock Holmes. I love that show. And he would come in, he would research, he would read about Sherlock Holmes, and he would come in with examples, and we would Mm -hmm. improvise scenes. Okay. And then he would take that away and he would write a scene and he'd come in and then we'd, we'd work the scene he wrote and he'd go, mm, it doesn't make sense. Take these words now improvise from there. So we were basically improvising within the context of writing a play. People would, other improvisers will use that in the context of sketch writing. We were doing right. it in the context of script. 
then in the rehearsal process, we would look at things. So a lot of Keith's exercises are actually exercises for actors because that's when he started getting involved in improvisation and he was looking at how to make actors look more real and available on stage instead of just being museum theater. So the status exercises, the understanding of how we use our body in space, the listening, uh, even exercises like making faces, these yeah. things were actual practical tools that the actor could use on stage. So as we were rehearsing scenes, Keith would say, you know, up your status of that character. Let's have these characters in a pecking order. We would apply the impro logic, the, right. the storytelling technique and the exercises in our rehearsal process to make the story richer, the characters more connected and the experience for the audience more vibrant. So if you're going to have, so, so the, the uh, reluctant resurrection of Sherlock Holmes mm. was a play that Keith wrote but your theater company had a big assist in, in this, in terms mm. of getting it from idea to final script. Absolutely. Would the uh, theater company cast the show and mm. then rehearsals were both working on what had been written and also what hadn't been written to get to a point where on opening night, you knew the words you were going to say Absolutely. in this scene or that. Okay. Absolutely. And then we use the impro technique and exercises to keep ourselves present. So we're living moment to moment to moment, which is what you aim to do when you're acting is to live and breathe the character in the moment. And if you saw your partner struggling that night, you would do something to help keep them present as you would a fellow improviser if you were playing a comedy show. So can you give an example of that? Sure. If, for example... Well, here's an example in rehearsal. Okay. Uh, we were doing uh, the children's show Robin Hood, and I was playing Maid Marian. And in rehearsal, the king's guards, the prince's guards come and they, they capture me in the forest. They bring me back to the castle. And they, I'm standing on stage, and the two guards went stage right, and they started talking about, you know, how the king is going to be happy. But I'm just standing there on stage left being the obedient actor because I've been captured. And Keith goes, wait, stop. And he comes down and he whispers to me. He says, do you want to be captured? I said, no. He said, do you want to be in the forest? I said, yes. He said, are the guards paying attention to you? Mm -hmm. I said, no, they've completely forgot I was on stage. He said, yes, this is when theater doesn't look real. The audience, especially the kids, will see that nobody's watching you. But you mm -hmm. don't look like you want to escape. And you have the opportunity. If this was reality, if you were actually captured and they were ignoring you, you would leave. Leave. Great. Yeah. So we re reset. We run the scene. The guards ignore me. I take off. They turn to talk to me when it's my line. I'm not there. <laughs> yeah. And they stop and go, oh, where's Patty? And Keith gets very <laughs> animated. Keith goes, made Marion's left. You've told the king you've got her and you don't. You're going to have your heads removed. You have to find her. And the two actors playing the guards just went, ah! and they started running around the theater trying to find me. So we had this mad chase sequence of them trying to catch me. And then, you know, they finally did. From that moment forward, whenever we played that scene, they never took their eyes off me mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because they knew 
me as the improviser, if I had the opportunity to keep them honest, I would. And because I would, it made the scene more honest and more electric. So you didn't change the script. No, we made it honest. You made it more honest based on the way you're... I mean, I guess you could say that's a type of blocking with your eyes as opposed to your feet uh, in some ways. It's not blocking because it does continue the story. Well, not blocking in the sense of uh, blocking the action, but like uh, uh, positioning. Positioning is what I mean. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) They also know that I'm not going to not let them catch me because the story needs, I need to be caught for the next scene. Right. Right. So as trust as improvisers, I'm not doing that because I want more stage time. I'm not doing that to screw up the story. I'm doing that to remind you that I could run Mm -hmm. and you have to keep an eye on me because that's your job as a guard is to Mm -hmm. guard. So you can add impro games in that kept things really vibrant. If someone lost a line, it was easy because we all knew the story. We all knew the story we were telling and you would help a partner out. Mm -hmm. Of course you would. So you mentioned, um, you used the word toolkit earlier, and uh, I think in many ways you've described some of the items in the toolkit that an improviser has in terms of looking more real or being more present. What are the missing toolkit or the tools from the toolkit that an actor would bring that you think many improvisers are missing? Mm. This was something else that was such a a gift at Loose Moose Theater. As we were working improvisation skills, I was also being taught acting skills because improvisation is acting. So every performance we did, we had notes afterwards. And the notes are such an important and valuable component of our learning, understanding, and growth as a performing artist. To be able to do a performance and then afterwards get some honest, feedback about the show is incredible. And I'm very sad that so many groups all over the world don't take the time and have this process. And it is a difficult process if people are trying to outstatus each other or prove their great intellect or Mm -hmm. if they're operating from fear and ego. So you do need to have a common goal in the group that everybody on the team is trying to create an experience for the audience and everybody in the team trusts each other, and you understand it's one person's opinion. You just listen to the opinion. Take it on board. Mm -hmm. It could be useful. And the fact that we got notes after every show helped me learn some of the tools that you've asked about. So for example, finding your light. There are so many improvisers, so many festivals I go to, so many people I see on stage that have no awareness of whether or not they're in the light. And that is such a basic basic skill that you need if you're going to be on stage. You mean just the stage lighting so that people can see your face and expression? Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. People walk out of the edge of the light on the right, the left. There's a spotlight. They're not in it. And to the audience, it looks sloppy. Yeah. Amateurish. and mm -hmm. Absolutely. It really looks amateurish. Projection of voice. There's a lot of very small theaters and people are mic'd. You don't need to be mic'd. <laughs> you need to learn how to use your voice and your breath. It's a powerful tool. Keith used to say to us, use your voice as a whip to discipline the audience. Okay. Uh, and what, and what, what, what exactly did that mean? I mean, I've, I've got an idea, but uh, what do you think that meant? 
Uh, your power, your volume, your variation of tone. The voice communicates emotion, status. If it's mic'd, everybody just talks like this and they just talk monotone and they just talk normally because it's going to be picked up on the mic. If you're on stage without a mic, you start to pronounce and you start to use different types of inflection to make the audience listen. Mm -hmm. That's a whip. If someone's about to pull out their phone and you go, listen, they're going to go, huh? what? What happened? And it's a skill that's lost in rapid fire monotone delivery. So you attribute some of that to the technology that people are using. Uh, a combination of things. It's technology. It's a lot of improv venues are very small stages with no wing space or backstage space. It's basically a stand-up stage. Yeah. And there's a lot of stand and talk because there isn't space and the room is small. So some of these things people have never been asked to do because they're not in a venue or an environment where it's an important element. Mm -hmm. But then they go to a festival and, you know, for example, uh, the Impro Amsterdam Festival, I believe is just finished. And one of their main stages is this beautiful theater and it's quite large. And if you don't know how to use your voice or find your light or play a stage, you're gone. You're, you mm -hmm. just, you shrink into nothingness. Mm -hmm. And I've seen a lot of groups do that. On the home stage, you know, in a, a small venue in a room of 50 people, they rock. They don't know how to adjust to bigger stages because they've never been taught about a stage. Yeah. They don't know where to stand on stage to get it, to get the focus. They don't know how to draw focus, give focus, place focus, draw the audience's focus and deflect it where you want it to go. They're not aware of the power of movement because they've never crafted work that's asked those questions, nor have they received feedback from someone sitting in the back row going, I couldn't hear you. Right. And even that note, I couldn't hear you. You could be the greatest improviser on earth. If I can't hear you and see you. Then you're not. <laughs> right. <laughs> not to them anyways. <laughs> yeah. So these basic techniques and tools are essential. Do you think, um, because uh, our, the group that I perform with, we do not have a home theater. We travel. And so, you know, in the last 10 years, I've been in a thousand venues, different mm. venues and rooms. The rooms themselves have, beyond just the size of the stage or the size of the audience, seems to have its own impact that is hard to quantify. I think there is an experience that you get better at it, but is there training that you feel uh, can be imparted to others about how to understand the dynamics of the space that you're in? Absolutely. First, I think it's interesting that performance spaces are be called rooms. That's that's very stand-up language. Yeah, right, right. Mm -hmm. Right? But there's there's a lot of blurring of language and I only raise it with a curiosity of, are we aware of the language we're using and how we are categorizing ourselves with the language we are using? So for improvisers who do look at improvisation or their chosen inspiration in the work of improvisation is to do high energy, quick verbal comedy impro, then using the language of the room kind of makes sense. 
because that's the world that they're living in, more sketch stand-up side. If you're a storyteller, if you're trying to create more theatrical work, long-form, genre-based, then maybe you should start considering the theater language because that's what you're actually doing. That's a side note to the question. So what do you do when you walk into a performing space? Well, some things that Keith taught me to do was go sit in the back row and see what it looks like. Try to find the worst seats in the audience, sit there, see what the sidelines are like. Test your voice on stage. Go to different places on the stage and see if you can bounce your voice off the back wall. How loud do you have to be to be heard? Mm -hmm. Have a look at the lighting rig. Ask the lighting improviser if there is one, could you show me the general wash? Could you run me through the lights? Are there any specials? Know the tools that you have because one, it's a creative opportunity and two, it just makes your work look better if you know where you're standing and you're in the light. Right. Have them put up the wash and see if you can find the edges. Uh, have them put up the spotlight. Learn when you're in it and when you're not because the angle of the spotlight will change and you can't always base it on the circle on the floor because the right. angle will also alter how it lights your face. Get a sense of the, the room. Does the room have a lot of air? Does the room feel stifled? Where is the audience coming in from? Are they coming in from a place that if they're late, they're going to be seen? So if the door is near the stage, mm -hmm. and as a group, you can go, right, are we going to acknowledge them when they come in? Are we not? How are we going to do that? Just so that you have a group understanding. So one, it doesn't keep deflecting you from your objective, but two, everybody's on side with what you're doing. So if someone goes, hey, hello, and the other person on stage has that moment of, you've, you've stopped the scene, the audience will yeah. pick up on that. So yeah. how are you going to handle it? Just ask the question. Yeah. If there's volunteers and they're in the room, it's often nice just to say hi to them. <laughs> yeah. They're going to meet your audience. If they feel included and welcomed, they're probably going to give a nicer energy to the audience when they come in. Mm -hmm. Do you have an opinion? This is something that we've been talking a little bit about in our group. I think the mm. general theater sensibility is to stay hidden uh, while the crowd is coming in versus being present and interacting with the audience as mm. they're coming in. Do you have a, um, a feeling on either approach being better or worse or what you think the pros and cons would be? It comes back to that first question or those first two questions. Yeah. What do you want to create and what is the audience's experience? Mm -hmm. If you are doing a show that the audience needs to feel really comfortable, warm, welcomed, relaxed, and trusting you, then their arrival to the space is an opportunity for you to start creating that. Mm -hmm. So if you're doing a show and you're going to ask the audience to, uh, for example, give you personal secrets, greeting them when they come in, helping to seat them, introducing yourself, creating a relaxed personal environment will help you when you're talking to them and asking them to trust you. Right. If you want to create a show that, you know, starts with, you know, mystery and surprise, then saying hi to them at the beginning may not do that. Mm -hmm. So what do you want to create? What's the audience's experience that will answer those questions for you? And mm -hmm. it is an option, just like the music you play when the audience comes in. Everything, when the audience arrives, the show begins. Right. The night doesn't begin when you begin talking. 
it begins from the moment they walk in that front door. So the lobby, the way a ticket is sold, how they're greeted at the concession, how the volunteers seat them or the, the front of house people seat them, the comfort of the chair, the temperature of the room, all of this affects the audience's experience. And if you don't have control over that because you're a guest company, mm-hmm. being aware of that lets you understand the state of mind the audience might be in when you start the show. These are all things that you were able to experience as part of your apprenticeship that Absolutely. I feel is uh, easy to lose track of if someone is put in the position of being the ticket taker because they're the person in class and we need somebody to do that for free. (laughs) And they don't understand that there is an element of the experience that they are now in charge of. Yes. That may be a diminishment of the importance of each piece of the of the experience that we or that theaters will do probably unconsciously. But I think it does, a lot of it does come back to the question of what it is that you want to uh, accomplish. Absolutely. And a lot of companies fall into that old system because that's a traditional system of theater that the people in the front support the stars who are on stage. When we were doing theater sports, something that was really important was to remove the ego from the work. We wanted the audience and the improvisers in a state of being present and all in the same space and time together. So it would be very common that you would be serving popcorn or taking tickets and be in the show. Mm -hmm. And there was no, I mean, everybody wanted to perform, of course. Sure. But taking tickets wasn't a looked down upon job. It was a job that the team needed to do. Just like yeah. setting up the stage, wash, you know, mopping the stage, clearing up the props afterwards. We all took turns running lights. We, we took turns stage managing. We took turns hosting. You learn the show because you're all a part of what you're creating. And when you greet the audience and you're like, hey, thanks for coming. Let me take you in and sit you down. And they feel really valuable and excited. It's you don't have to work them up with really loud music and fist pumping and all of that intro stuff a lot of groups do. That's for the performer's ego. You could create a really wonderful, warm, engaging environment to walk out into just by how you welcome people. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't have to be forced. It can be incredibly authentic. Also for the audience, it's really exciting for them if they saw you last week on stage and then this week you're taking their ticket. They're like, what? Because you don't get that connection with performers in most other performance arts. Right. The stars have a secret door. They arrive by secret cars. They're whisked away at a secret time. Mm -hmm. Kind of nice to have someone go, here's your popcorn. Yeah, yeah. Well, especially in improv, because I think ninety-five percent of improvisers don't get paid anyways. So absolutely, (laughs) maybe maybe the currency is the special positioning for some men. And I I loved it. I loved being able to see the audience beforehand and start to create that relationship with them. Sometimes when you're performing at festivals, it's harder because you you might be teaching a workshop right before and you've got two hours between the workshop and the show. So you've got to mm-hmm. eat and you have tech. It's a different beast. But I'm talking about, you know, for your, your home company or your, your home group, 
these are really important questions to ask. I mean, that said, if I'm creating a show for a festival, I will look at what type of music do I want the audience to walk into? What kind of lights are on stage? What's the preset? Do we want the improvisers on stage before you come out or not? Meeting the audience or not? And again, it depends on what I'm trying to create. So we had an episode with a guy named Ken Davis, who is a communicator, well, based now out of Tennessee. And one of the things that he talks about in terms of putting together a presentation or any kind of performance, really, is he says, if you don't have a goal, one will subconsciously and unconsciously come to the forefront for you and you will drive towards that. So if you have a goal to communicate a certain topic and you don't direct yourself towards that topic, you may find yourself having the different goal of, I want to be liked or I want people to think I'm funny, <laughs> which leads to a completely different experience, right? Yeah. So what do you think are the whys of improvisational theater companies generally, or do you think there is a better answer to that question than some others? Is it just different? What do you think? Um, I think it's a really interesting statement that Ken made because having a goal or an objective does give you a clarity of direction. Um, mm -hmm. It doesn't, it doesn't, you know, immediately mean you'll succeed, right. but it gives you a point of focus. And I think that's what I mean when I say, why are you creating the show? What do you want the audience to experience? Those are the goals. And so the decisions you make align with that goal to work towards those objectives. But instead of calling it a goal, I would probably call it a creative objective. Okay. But I think right. that's just splitting hairs of language. Now. Sure, sure. And I think there are people that teach improvisation, and I was very fortunate to be taught by someone who does this, where Keith Johnstone was trying to inspire my imagination. He was trying to inspire me to think, to think for myself. He was trying to inspire me to witness and learn and have perspective, opinion, to be bold and brave enough to try and to create, and to give me the tools and techniques to support me in that. And there's a lot of improvisation teachers that are doing that. They're trying to awaken creativity and support people in tools and questions to have you walk into the unknown. But there is another stream of improvisation, which is about conditioning, which is about almost kind of creating an impro military where they, they don't want you to think, they want you to do. They don't want you to challenge ideas, they want you to obey. They don't want you to take something and explore it, they want you to perfect the doing of it. And it's creating a really robotic, repetitive, mundane use of an incredibly powerful skill. It's kind of human nature that you get something and people want to control it, but improvisation isn't something we control. It's something we learn, we try to understand, and we need to keep pushing the boundaries, not limit the potential. Yeah, I, I, I hear all <laughs> that. I feel, I feel like, and I don't know if you have some specific examples in mind, but I would say as I've spoken with people at different you know, different improv traditions or subsets of a tradition, there are critiques and criticisms that will be levied against one or the other. Mm. 
And I think one of the criticisms that sometimes comes in is that this particular group is too narrow or or they are too formulaic or they're too focused on this, that, or the other. And in some ways, speaking with those folks, they have the same critiques of the you know, not the opposite, but the other schools where someone is kind of viewing them that way. This, this, I'm, I'm asking a question as opposed to asking you to defend your answer because I'm, not, I'm really not. What I'm, what I'm asking though is when you look at improv rules or structures, um, a lot of times those are shorthands or shortcuts or partial descriptions that, you know, can help you from getting too far off center, whatever that is. But then those rules, if you just state them and stick to them kind of dogmatically, well, then they fall apart, mm. right? So is it that is that the, the particular performer fails to understand the spirit or purpose behind the rule and uh, just stays within the little the little boundaries that they feel will get them to a an acceptable result as opposed to pushing further where the what I would think is a pretty common goal is to share the human condition um, or to be vulnerable or to be giving on stage or all those kinds of things. Yeah. Where 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 is it that we're falling down in different places? First off, I don't think it's not I don't think my previous statement is not about any particular school of thought because I see the problem with overstructure and turning it into a system happening in all the schools. Yeah. So it's not a Johnstone versus Close versus Spolin, not at all. Primarily because looking at Spolin's work, Close's work, and Johnstone's work, all three of them were pushing boundaries. All three of them were against rules. <laughs> they, mm -hmm. there was a rule they were breaking it to see what else so if we look at those three schools of thought the seed of the schools the original teachers were not rules based they were not focused on this is the way it always must be done they were exploring mm -hmm. the what if it was done the other way they were trying to, to break conformity they were trying to allow improvisers to be truly present and to find out what happens where we can connect to a, 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 um, an honest present moment, the spontaneity of the moment without fear, anxiety, judgment, conditioning, social conditioning. What is that? And that's, that's in all of their work. It's been the application of the work after by other teachers and students. That's where the problem starts. Some of that is people honestly trying and exploring something new, great, explore. But some of it is ego-based. Some of it is, hmm, I need to put it into absolutes because it helps me to teach. That's not me talking, I'm just saying right, 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 some features. Right. So for example, it's, I, I don't believe there's rules. I'm, I'm actively against rules because the minute you say this is a rule, the student hears it differently because mm -hmm. a rule means this is what you always do. Yeah. Rule by definition removes other possibilities. And that's problematic to me. Calling it a technique, a skill, a principle, you know, anything else, a principle is not a rule. A technique is not a rule. Yeah. A rule 
you don't break. A rule you must follow. A rule has consequences if you break it. If it has consequences, now you're actually instilling fear. Where Our original teachers were trying to remove fear and social consequences so we could perform other. Mm -hmm. And now we've got people who are building back in consequences and fear and social consequences because if you break a rule in a group the group sees you break the rule yeah you asked a question on stage (laughs) which that rule drives me nuts (laughs) yeah it it is a uh again you can see the training wheels part of it because asking questions may mean you're just not offering you're not adding you're not participating you're shrinking back whatever it is i disagree well tell me about that part of it did you kill a man that's a pretty good question yeah yeah (laughs) that that motivates story moves story puts you in a moral dilemma it's not a questions are not the problem right it's the skill level of the improviser and why they're asking the question. So saying never ask questions, that's a Band-Aid solution to a deeper problem. It is, yeah. I mean, the questions I I think of that I remember from 101 is if people kept coming in and saying, "Uh, what's going on? And and just, but you can work with it, right? If you're you're an improviser, you can add to it. Here's why, why I said rules serve the teacher. So if I'm a teacher, and I'm watching endless scenes that are going nowhere, and I can't figure out why, and I don't have either the experience, the skill, the language, the technique to help motivate or see that the reason the scenes are going nowhere is because we've got students that are afraid of taking risk. So what they're doing is they're wimping in their energy and in their offers because they're afraid of screwing up in front of the class. That's what's happening under that hey, what's going on? That's what that is. It's take care of me. I'm trying to fit in. I don't want anybody to see that I don't know what's going on. So if you are not in a place as a teacher to help that student not wimp, it's much easier to say, don't ask questions. Because then whenever you ask a question, as a teacher, I can say you asked a question and it sounds like I have authority and I know what's going on. But what I've done is I've actually built more fear and anxiety for that student because now they're going, I can't ask questions and I'm afraid of taking a leap and I don't know what to do. So it puts them into a more intellectual space instead of an impulsive space. And it, it changes the dynamic. Maybe they'll learn eventually, you know, but for me, it seems like a much more complicated process and it serves the teacher more so than the student where, Mm If a student came in and said, hey, what's going on? I could side coach and go, pause, let's replay that, run in and scream. They run in and scream, and then we find out what. Mm -hmm. So what I can do is I can give them the offer that makes them bold and loud. They're doing what I've asked, so it's not their creative risk. They're kind of obeying teacher, but the result Mm -hmm. of what they'll feel could be a great freedom. I've pushed the fear boundary because they've gone over that fear boundary mm-hmm. and they've experienced it. Now, if they say, oh, you know, if my suggestion tenses them, then I've got to change and alter something else. Right. So the example isn't an absolute because every student, every situation, every class is different. It's a loose example now in conversation as a what if. 
Yeah, I I feel that the idea of sort of um, directing a, a a change, like you said, come in and scream, is not something that would typically come from maybe I don't know. We'll just call it sort of the Chicago style approach whatever that is because it takes away this is um is at least how i'm going to phrase it it takes away the initiation from the person coming in however what you're doing is you are you're giving them a way to do something and to try on the moccasins that allow them to make a choice coming in so that they can learn it as opposed to instructing them in what either they you know did wrong but the the rule in some ways is, would you say no wimping is a rule <laughs> uh, i wouldn't call it a rule i would call uh-huh. it an observation of human behavior okay and wimping obstructs stories from moving forward mm-hmm. so let's acknowledge as humans there are things that we will do that will prevent stories from moving forward. Yeah. So when I think of like the the Westminster uh, Place kitchen rules, you familiar with those? Mm, go on. So this this is supposedly uh, put together by Elaine May and Ted Flicker from the old Compass Player Second City yeah. as sort of their initial rules is is in the the title of it. Mm. But as I understand it, they were more observations of tendencies of what worked on stage. Yes. Right. And I think what works on stage in some ways gets back to what you just said about at least human behavior or accessibility on stage. You've also added the word story to your example about keeping that moving forward. Mm. So part of my question is, is there a commonality for improv or should should we approach uh, improv with the sense that it is a human experience and whatever can allow us to be freest in our personal selves with each other is is a goal that uh, maybe all improvisers should have? Wow. Uh, yeah. I mean, when I read what Spolin wrote, I see a fascination with humanity. Mm-hmm. And I mean, truth and comedy is Dell's work, but Dell didn't write it. Mm-hmm. So I feel like I'm getting an, an interpretation of his voice from someone witnessing his work. Yeah. Does that make sense? I think so. So in my example, I'm going to talk about Spolin and, and Keith, because I feel like I've heard their voice from them. I've only heard Dell's voice through other people. But when I, when I read Spolin, I, I feel this great fascination with how do people work? What, what do we do? What don't we do? Why do we do what we do? Mm-hmm. And that's very much Keith as well. Well, that's theater too, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. That, that's, performing artists are reflections of life. We're mirrors of life. We're instigators and investigators of what's happening in humanity. You know, at any time, you know, society comes up to a rough patch or is going through a rough patch, you look at what's going on in the artistic community, the songs that are being created, the movies, the stories, the plays that are coming out. It's an expression of human condition. And understanding how we relate and respond as people is so important in our improvisation work. Being on stage in front of people is not a normal environment. When we look at all the tools we have to function in society and work in group dynamics, 
standing in front of your peers is not the place you would opt to be. Mm -hmm. To be standing in a place where everybody can judge you is <laughs> not a place that we would opt to be. Right. So we have to understand that if you're standing in front of 50, 100, 1,000 people, that affects you. And how it affects you is going to impact how you improvise, how you create, how you work with strangers. When you go into your first impro class, you're in a room with a group of strangers. Mm -hmm. There's reasons why we have exercises at the starting level that are about connecting, listening, accepting, trusting, valuing, because sharing yourself with strangers is a vulnerable place. Putting your creativity out on the table for other people to potentially judge it is a vulnerable place. Mm -hmm. So you create a room of safety and you remove the fear. That way we can actually start getting towards the creating. Unfortunately, after the beginning work, when people get into kind of the intermediate level, we stop working on nurturing that environment. The language starts changing to, yeah, you're good. That was funny. Oh, that line. Right. Which immediately starts putting focus on end objective. Mm -hmm. So we've shifted from group process, acceptance, allowance, permission, support. And now we start shifting into success, delivery, objective, and survival. Because the survival comes when the other things start becoming what is noted and rewarded. And you see that people change the behavior from the classroom to the stage mm -hmm. because all the fear factors have now gone up a notch. So the tension in the shoulders, the anxiety in the hands, the pacing in the feet, the dropping the head to focus on what you're going to say instead of raising the head to be present with what's happening. We're not, as a community, we have a lot to learn in that transition from beginning to stage, to keep the work really, truly present and open and available. Because what I'm seeing internationally, regardless of school, mm -hmm. what I'm seeing is that people take the classes and they feel open and free, and then they hit the stage and all the human defenses come up, all the, the ways of protecting self and the survival skills come in, and the language around it is actually enhancing that. Yeah, that's a that's an interesting observation. We've talked a little bit about the the quote unquote one oh one shows, how those typically have their own kind of energy and typically I think go quite well, whereas it can start to drop off in levels two, three, four. Mm -hmm. And some of it may be, and this may vary just as improvisation is just a bigger thing and more people know about it and think to get into it. But I don't think a lot of people go into a level one class with any other objective other than getting to the end of it. Whereas if you're in yeah. level three, you're starting to think, oh, maybe I got a shot at becoming cast in this or put on this team or that. And so now those individual objectives start to creep up a little bit more. And the self-protective aspects, I, I can see. Now, um, I have heard you talk a couple of times, and I cannot have a conversation with you or cannot have my first conversation with you, Patty, without asking to talk about the concept of the stage being a scary place. And uh, to me, I think a lot of what you've just shared relates to this. 
And I know the quote, I know what I've heard you talk about, the, the fear aspect, but can I ask you to share the quote from Keith and its importance um, and, uh, and I guess your perspective on it? Absolutely. It is one of my favorite quotes. And the quote is, the stage is a scary place. We can either improve the armor or remove the fear. And I love that quote. It's very good. It's, it's spot on. Yeah. It's truthful. It's happening. When I was uh, learning to improvise, there was a, a time when I was teaching, but what I was actually doing was running people through the exercises. And I thought I was teaching because I was explaining the game and I was running people through the exercise, but I actually wasn't teaching. Then I started observing Keith, not what he was teaching, but how he was teaching. And it was a completely different experience. And as I was doing that, in one of his workshops, he came up to me and he would start pointing things out. Did you notice the person there? Look at the person over there. What's happening over there? And I was watching and I was going, what is he seeing? What is he seeing? Mm -hmm. And then at the break, he said to me, what we have to do is remove the fear. Fear is the obstacle. And that's what he does in class. So when he says to someone, for example, say this, do this, he's taking the blame because he's had the idea. <laughs> right? But because he's had the idea, if you do what he says and it doesn't work, it's his fault. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right? So in a way, he's removing some fear. He's also giving you permission. Mm -hmm. If he said, Patty, scream, I love you, he's giving me permission to say that. He might have seen that I wanted to say it in the scene, but he's giving me permission and he's taking the blame if it doesn't work. So on a level, he's removing fear. If it does work, it's my success. Because people will remember the moment that I said it. Mm -hmm. They won't remember the moment that he told me to say mm -hmm. it. So, which I think is really fascinating. So I started watching the classes for where is the fear? And you start seeing all of these human behaviors that we have, that we keep demonstrating, showing, revealing that are fear-based. So if I'm teaching a class for the first time, I watch how people walk in the room how they say hi to each other. Before I even start, who's gone to the corner of the room? Who's avoiding making eye contact? Who's going around the room introducing themselves to everybody? Just what's happening? Where? Who are these wonderful people? They're my offer. Each person is a brand new offer. It's sad that we start thinking all students are the same or all people are the same because they're not. Right. Everybody is the beautiful, complex individual that they are. And they're a gift in their being. So who are they? Where are they starting today? Mm -hmm. Then you watch how people navigate each other. Having a set agenda for a class, I will teach this game, this game, this game, could be problematic. Okay. Because a particular game may not work with a particular class. So do you follow your objective because you're a teacher and this is your criteria? Or do you go, hang on, my goal is to connect people. So I have this amazing database mm -hmm. of exercises that work which of those exercises will meet my goal with this particular class mm -hmm. and be flexible to the needs of the class as you would be flexible to the needs of your partner in a scene because mm -hmm. we're improvising mm -hmm. notice the obvious how can i make this class look good how can i support them and constantly be looking at where's the fear and how to remove the fear well, I think implicit in the, the quote, if the objective is to survive the stage, 
I, I guess either approach could be <laughs> acceptable, right? To, to remove mm. the fear or to uh, have a fantastic armor. But if we go back to our, well, two things. One, I think if the objective is set out and the objective is to be uh, human and present or something in that sense, then armor obscures all those things. Right. And will fantastic armor allow you to jump into the unknown? Well, I guess it depends what what kind of monsters are in the unknown. Uh, But armor also is uh, uh, something that will fail you, whereas who you are is who you are. And it's more constant, I think, or reliable. Yeah. I've seen a lot of improvisers with amazing armor and an incredible tool belt of skills and their work is restricted because of their armor. They, they won't explore or jump into the unknown because they can't predict or control the unknown. Yeah, so in, in that kind of situation, there may be a perceived success in terms of audience reaction. Uh, someone who is particularly mm-hmm. skilled at brandishing their shield or whatever may get applause for that skill set, but it ends up... I think, generally diminishing the other performer's experience. And that seems to be at least part of the goal in improvisation is that the shared experience is also important. I think it impacts the audience's experience as well, but it's not it's not always as apparent to them as it might be to the improviser who just watched someone shine, which is another Johnstonian term that I appreciate mm-hmm. because I do think it communicates something very foundational to the experience. Absolutely. It's interesting when, if, if, if you're performing and you're not getting feedback, you can really be misled by the audience. Because uh, you can hear roaring laughter, and it might be from 10 people. Mm-hmm. But if you have someone sitting in the audience taking notes, then they go, yeah, you got laughter from your 10 friends. Mm-hmm. But there was other people who pulled out their phone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and sure, that may be hard to hear, but it's important to hear. If you're on stage and you have a completely false sense of what you're doing, wouldn't you want to have clarity of information so that you could grow as a performer? Well, I would think so. I mean, for me, yes. But, you know, if if you go on stage because you want validation and applause and that's your only objective, then you probably don't want feedback. Yeah. If you're going on stage because you want to create and explore, you want to give the audience, an op- you know, an experience and you want to find out what's possible in the connection with other improvisers in that spontaneous, creative, beautiful nothingness, which is everything. If you want to play in the danger of that, knowing you've got all this incredible skill and technique behind you, but let's see what the beast will reveal tonight. Mm -hmm. Armor doesn't serve you in that. Every impro class starts with acceptance and connection, be it you know, if, you, if you're getting people to practice yes and yes and, or for me, it's working on acceptance. Regardless of school of thought, that's where impro classes begin. Listening, mm-hmm. being present, mm-hmm. accepting your partner. That's where we start. So if that morphs into my armor and shining, and I'm not paying attention to the rest of my players, and I have a great experience, and I get applause, and they don't. Something is very fundamentally wrong yeah. <laughs> in here's what we do, 
but we let you get away with not doing what we yeah. do. And I've heard you also talk about yes and in a way of um, having a sometimes a cultishness, and I wonder if some of that is yeah. also uh, an armorishness that's employed as a as a way to almost demand approval for everything that uh, that that you may may do. Yeah. Yes, and is really fascinating because it kind of intersects with a lot of things that we've talked about with rules, with armor, technique. So the the principle of yes, and I agree with. Mm-hmm. The principle of acceptance, the principle of valuing, adding, contributing, enhancing the offer that's there. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. My objection to yes, and it's how it's gone from beautiful principle, beautiful theory into a cult-like rule-based obedience. And so people will run around saying, yes, and, yes, and, we have to say yes, and. And then I watch them on stage and all they're doing is blocking each other. They're saying yes, and, but the spirit is survival. The ears are turned off. Right. They're just listening to what people are saying, mining it for possible jokes and gags so that they survive and they look good. And they'll say yes and, but the stories don't advance. Mm -hmm. The yes is a pause. It's not an acceptance. The and is my idea. It's not valuing your idea. Mm -hmm. So this beautiful principle has turned, it's like a snake eating its tail. It's, It's gone back on itself. Right. And people are also using it for a justification of bad behavior, where I've seen people go on stage and say horrible things to their partner. Yeah. Because they know that they have to yes and it. Yeah, that's the that's what I think of as the bullying nature of of yes and. You bet. And it is very destructive. It's very demeaning. That that grabbing of of focus to advance, you know, whatever it is that you're trying to advance at someone else's expense, it does not fit the spirit mm-hmm. of at least at least what I think improv is all about. Or should be about. I agree completely. With with Keith's teaching, we, I, I don't remember yes and being a focus. Mm-hmm. We might have done exercise. I remember saying yes, let's and yes. We do yes, but yes, and as an example. Mm-hmm. But yes, and taught to that fever cultish pitch. No. Mm-hmm. Our focus was about acceptance and the obvious, be obvious. So if I was on stage having a cup of tea, let's say, and someone came on stage and said, you know, I'm home, get in the bedroom, which is like, uh, okay, (laughs) hang on. I was having a cup of tea. All right. So you didn't see me being relaxed. You didn't see nurturing. You didn't see tired. You didn't see tea. You saw a woman home. Mm -hmm. Okay. If I had the negative end of the scale of the yes and teaching, and I'm a brand new improviser, What I've heard is someone come on stage and say, we're having sex, Mm -hmm. get in the bedroom. It's demanding, it's objectifying, it's threatening, it's potentially violent. All my fear triggers are going to go up. But I've been taught the rule is I have to say yes and. So I'm going to say yes to something that every fiber in my body is fearing. And then I have to add to it. Yeah. Right? Now, experienced improvisers, 
that are listening to this right now are going, there's many ways of dealing with it. And I agree with you. But I'm talking about people who maybe don't have that experience and they've been given a rule and now they're stuck. Where if they were taught, accept the obvious, the obvious of that offer is someone's demanding, controlling, possibly violent, Mm -hmm. sexualizing you, and they've just interrupted your day. (laughs) It's a pretty good cup of tea after all. (laughs) So all of those things are also valuable offers and they're possible because they're in the obvious. The audience also would have gone, whoa, that's abrupt. So if I'm having a cup of tea and someone smashes the door in and says, I'm home, get in the bedroom, I could laugh at them. Mm -hmm. I could laugh and go, is this a new sex game? Or I could scream and run to the phone and call 911 Mm -hmm. or triple O, depending on where you are. (laughs) Because that's that's also accepting that I'm at risk. Mm -hmm. It's still part of what's there. If they say, get in the bedroom, I could jump up you know, and, st- and go, you know, start playing sexy music or, there, I mean, there's a, min- a lot of different ways of accepting it. I can also just turn and go, I'm tired of your bull. I'm leaving you. I'm not here for your objectification. Mm-hmm. Now, the scene has gone from comedy to truth. But when I improvise and the way I like to improvise and how I've been taught is that we're allowing the story and we're playing whatever story arrives. It's an unknown. That story is is something that is shared as well. So when someone comes in and demands that this particular story is going to be the one that is focused on, there there is an aspect of, you know, if we want to stick with the, the original terms, yes, ending that moment. And so now someone has violated whatever that principle or preference or process might be. If you are in theater, I think there are moments where you could decide this is the kind of subject matter that we're going to pursue. But if you are mm. if you are improvising, I think there is a bit of a shared contract that the way we are going to interact with each other is going to be within certain boundaries. And unless there is a an aspect of the contract that says that we can delve into subject matter or scenes that are uncomfortable or demeaning, then you just don't go there. I think that comes back to what do you want to create? Yeah. And what do you want the audience to experience? Right. And as a company of performing artists, that's defined before you do your show. So when we played theater sports at Loose Moose, you would get scenes that would challenge politics or religion or uh, social constructs. It wasn't all light entertainment. Keith is anti-light entertainment. It's that's not what he wanted to create in improvisation and and in theater. But that was part of the ethos of your group. Absolutely. Because that was all fair game. Absolutely, and we understood that. So a scene, I could make an offer and you might play it comedically, you might take it seriously. I don't know moment to moment what we're gonna create. What I do know is that we're going to try to create a night of variety. So if the scene before us has been maybe dealing with heavy themes, we're probably not going to go in that world again mm-hmm. because we don't, we're, we're trying to create a night with a lot of different tones and textures. But that's also implied within our shared agreement in what we want to create and the experience we want to create for the audience. 
Right, right. So you're right. If you're playing with people you don't know and you're in an open mixer show where the only creative objective is it's a mixer, Mm -hmm. me being me, I might dip my toe into something to see if you'll play with me. But if I pick up any signs of fear, uncomfortableness, I'll shift gears. Mm -hmm. It's not about my agenda or forcing my idea or objective. It's me following the truth of the moment, honestly and obviously, but also really being in tune with my partner to see if that's your obvious or your comfort. Mm -hmm. And if it's not, there's a thousand possibilities in any offer. In the example of the, the person you know, busting in the door and me not immediately saying yes and going to the bedroom, there will be people who listen to that example and gone, well, you blocked him mm-hmm. or her. Right. You blocked that improviser. My response to that is they'll say, you blocked the story from progressing about what would happen in the bedroom. My answer to that is they blocked what could happen with me having a cup of tea. Yeah. And so many scenes start on the second offer. If you watch, you will see time and time again, people are ignoring the first 10 to 15 to 20 seconds of a scene. Mm -hmm. They don't actually take any of the starting elements as offers of the foundation of the platform. Mm -hmm. It starts with the first verbal Mm -hmm. and that becomes the first offer, Mm -hmm. which I think is very misleading because it means the people on the side of the stage aren't paying attention. Mm -hmm. They're thinking and planning their clever entrance which is armor, they're coming in and then the person on stage has to do cleanup and readjustment instead of everybody off stage watching what's happening right. and coming on to value that. And the audience has seen it all. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So this, the person on stage has to alter and yes and, but the person who came on was not yes and. Right. And if it's a rule, it can get stuck. <laughs> you know, but... The type of material you play, the type of stories you tell, the type of scenes you do, the content that you choose to work in is part of the creative process you have with your group. And I love doing full-on, let's have at it, comedy shows. Absolutely. Let's have fun and play and have a great old time. Mm -hmm. I also really love exploring the dark edges of humanity and having the audience leave with thoughts and ideas and questions to, to have them feel suspense, tension, uh, have them feel uh, sympathy, sadness, fear, because that's acting. That's storytelling. But that's why Loose Moose wasn't Loose Moose Impro Troupe. It's Loose Moose Theater Company, because we lived in that world. All of those tones and textures were possibilities. And we worked hard in our training to make sure that we were really safe with each other, trusted each other, understood the creative objectives that we had as a group and a company, and gave each other the tools to be able to play in the moment and obviously. Mm-hmm. And if part of the obvious was, I don't want to do the scene, you know, I, if, if I was on a loose moose stage having a cup of tea and someone came in and bust the door open and said that, I could also turn and go, what? What, what kind of offer is that? Go off and give me a new one. Mm-hmm. And that improviser would go, okay, because they'd go, right, there's something about that world Patty doesn't want to play. Yeah. And they wouldn't want to force me into that. But the audience is seeing theater they'd never see before. They never see an actor tell another actor to leave and try something else. Hmm. But that could be a fun game for mm-hmm. us. Okay, 
find the offer that pleases me, <laughs> which is kind of Impro 101. You just play a we new do choice. that in our beginning classes. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> but to actually take an exercise, a training exercise, and put it into application sure. seems to be foreign to a lot of improvisers. Mm-hmm. Once they start an intermediate, they drop all the exercises, and it's like a different concept. But those exercises train and develop our skills, and they're always at play. So if I shift dangerous offer to let's play new choice, but I'm doing it not to make you look bad. I'm doing it from a, oh, that's unsafe material for me, or you've taken a risk, but I don't think that's what the audience wants. And I'm looking after you by giving you an out, then it's completely fine. But it also allows us to play where we can try knowing that our partners are going to be honest, obvious, and supportive because they know we're not trying to push you into something you don't want to do. Mm-hmm. I don't know if any of that made sense. None of it did, which was disappointing. No, <laughs> <laughs> no, it, I, like, <laughs> no I, I like the, uh, the ethos of actually in a show, being mm-hmm. able to have that sense of freedom with your co-performers because there is a uh, extra element of being present that I just feel from your description of that kind of experience that I think would be additive and and not uh, lessening of the show unless it happens every single time Kevin walks on stage, you know? <laughs> so... <laughs> and that's why you get notes after right. a show. So week two, the note person would go, Kevin, you did that again. <laughs> And week three, if Kevin did it, then if he did it to me, I'd be going, Kevin, let's try a new a new thing. You know, because if Kevin's stuck in some sort of, you know, Groundhog Day time loop right. and the note didn't make sense or the note, like he's struggling with it, then I can help him out. Mm-hmm. I could say, right, the audience is going to give you your lines or you play my role and I'll play your role. Right. Or like there's so many, so many things we can do to look after each other. Remove the fear and get to the present, that beautiful, spontaneous moment. And that's what I'd be doing if Kevin got locked in that Groundhog Day thing. I'm not trying to discipline Kevin. I'm trying to help Kevin because he's doing that for some reason. Let's see if I can help you break it. Let's break it in a playful, fun, supportive, connected way. Mm -hmm. Well, Patty, at the beginning, I said, uh, if I got through 10% of what I had in mind... (laughs) (laughs) And I feel pretty good. I think I have failed. But um, I'm also conscious of where we're at in time. uh, And you've been very generous with it. To close out our conversation, though, I want to at least dip a quick toe into the fact that you are you are a traveling person, you teach all over the world. And you teach not only in English speaking countries, but many non-English speaking countries. In fact, your blog, I think, is in four languages. Mm. So you are interacting with different different cultures, different uh, streams of improv. So my question for you is, what have you picked up on in the non-English speaking world about improv that might be missing from the mm. English-speaking traditions? Mm. Uh, I, I think sometimes in English-speaking cultures, we live in a bit of a bubble. And it's a, I guess, a bubble of privilege. Mm-hmm. Because English is a dominant language 
other cultures are always adjusting to us. Mm -hmm. And we need to be mindful of that for a couple of reasons. One, we need to embrace people of all languages and all cultures in their impro work and journey because they, they have the same right to space and language and creativity and culture as we do. Secondly, it's a great gift to us. The performing arts have different traditions and histories in different cultures. Right. People work differently with body, voice, movement, references, language, use of language, rhythm of language. And it's, it's a, a wonderful opportunity to open more and more power and potential in your own impro learning. And it also helps keep you very aware as a performer and a teacher. Uh, when I'm in Italy, the students come into an impro class open. They're ready. Um, emotions are easy to play. The emotions will be vibrant and exciting and big. Where sometimes in North America, if I ask people to play emotion, it's very restrained and controlled. Mm -hmm. Or it goes happy, angry, lust. It's got three right. textures. But it, and also sometimes in English-speaking countries, people come into a class and the teacher has to prove themselves before people engage in the class. There's like these defenses that come in. In Italy, people come in quite open. They'll experience it, and then they'll make their decision about you after. Mm -hmm. In a lot of English-speaking countries, they, they'll often make the decision about you within the first half hour, mm -hmm. which is a really interesting cultural shift. Mm. Uh, in France, performers are quite physical. Uh, but we have to remember that when people greet each other in France and Italy, the, because people come in and they kiss... They're used to being closer in each other's body space, mm -hmm. which is not necessarily a North American thing. So there's different cultural aspects that change the level of play and engagement of play. And if you're playing with someone from a different culture, you might get completely different physical offers, emotional offers, which is wonderful, but can be off-putting if you've only played in your community and you haven't had the experience of playing other. I also find that in particular in Europe, the theatrical creation, the desire to use cross disciplines mm -hmm. to explore other mediums and to bring in other mediums in improvisation, really exciting. Yeah. You know, the, uh, the political work, the, the extension of the work, the, the challenging big themes and ideas, it's fantastic to watch that. Because a lot of uh, English speaking cultures live in a bubble, we tend to go to a festival or a country and just play as we would play at home. Mm -hmm. And there's, a, there's an arrogance in that. Yeah. We need to go, hang on, this audience, English is a second language. If I stand on stage with my partner and I talk at 100 miles an hour, the audience is not going to pick up on that. Right. So, so who is this show for? Mm -hmm. Is this show for me to go on, do what I do, screw you? Or am I creating work that I want the audience to engage in? And if I want them to engage in it, how am I going to do that? Yeah. And these are great learnings for us. They're not obstacles, they're opportunities. Mm -hmm. But because if you travel in particular in North America and you do the North America Festival Circuit, you've never had to question that or adjust or think outside of the box because it hasn't been the environment you're in. Mm -hmm. You know, Be sensitive to that. Be aware of that. Be open to that. You know, learn how to say please and thank you before you go to another country. <laughs> um, it's not hard. <laughs> yeah. And, and 
ask questions about their scene, go see shows in other languages, feel what it's like to be an audience member who doesn't understand the language. Mm -hmm. It's amazing to watch shows in other languages. Mm -hmm. And as a teacher, also be aware of that. Mm -hmm. You're there to inspire them. It's your job to find the tools of connection, not theirs. That's great. That's great. Well, Patty, I hope we get a chance to do this again. I've already got my notes ready for our next conversation, but I'd be very happy to. We'll make sure people know how to get to you. Your website is pattystyles, P A T T I S T I L E S dot com. Some great blog entries uh, that we didn't get a chance to talk about today. They're they're good, a lot of meat on the bone kind of conversations that people in, can engage with you on on your site. And I just noticed you have some video teaching as well on there, which I had not seen. You must have changed your website uh, fairly recently, I feel, but. Anyways, or yeah, I did actually. Okay. Yeah, at the end of last year, I did a, a bit of an update and a refresh. Okay. So, anyways, lots of good stuff there. And you're traveling the world. And so, uh, you know, you got to catch you at the right time, but uh, eventually you'll be in someone's backyard. So, Patty, thank you for joining us on the Improv Comedy Connection. Thank you so very much. Uh, I hope my ramblings are, are helpful. You know, people don't have to agree with them. Whatever, whatever you disagree with, just ask yourself why. And hopefully there's some learning in that. I'm sure there's always that uh, that opportunity. And you can always skip forward 30 mm -hmm. seconds or skip back 15. You know, you've got those options as well on your podcast app. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again, Patty. Thank you so much. There are a hundred things to highlight, but let me at least mention one thing that we came back to several times, and that's defining your objective for your performance. What do you want to create? And what do you want the audience to experience? I think Patty is spot on that most teams, troops, theaters, whatever, don't ask those questions and therefore most don't have answers to them. But they're such defining, unifying questions that can dramatically shape and direct what you do and what you don't do on stage that you need to ask them. So if your troop or theater or team hasn't asked those questions, I'd not only challenge you to do so, but also to reverse engineer the answers that would seem to be flowing from your performances to those questions. I also love the conversation about how yes and might be overdone or misused. And it's worth considering the implications of the somewhat alternative foundation of being honest, obvious, and supportive. Another moment in the conversation that seemed remarkable to me was the discussion of how Patty's former troupe would have handled someone coming into a scene with an uncomfortable or offensive offer. The self-awareness and value that each member of an ensemble would have to have for one member to be able to simply state, what kind of offer is that, go back and give me another, seems extraordinary to me. I don't know that I fully processed that myself, but I do think if it's done with the right spirit, the option to not play a particular offer seems healthy to me. And there's still a good amount of getting healthy that many troops, teams, and theaters need to do. I could say a lot more, but you've been given a lot to think about in this episode. Let me know what you think and what you think about how this podcast could be more helpful to you. Although Patty Styles was definitely on my radar as someone to talk with, I'll note that one listener's encouragement to get her on the podcast was definitely a boost for me to reach out to her, and I'm glad I did. So please do share your feedback and suggestions for guests or topics with me at wit at improvcomedyconnection.com or online through the podcast pages or accounts on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. As always, I'm doing this to be of help to you as we work together to connect more deeply with each other and our audiences through comedy. 
It's a pretty good gig to be your host on the Improv Comedy Connection. My name again is Witt Schiller, and I'm an improviser out of Milwaukee with Fishsticks Comedy. You can check us out at fishstickscomedy.com, and you can connect with me on social media at Witt Schiller on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. It's early, but you can also go to witchiller.com for more info on the podcast and additional content and resources to help you in your comedy or communication journey. Thanks again for tuning in to the Improv Comedy Connection. 